ready to get into God's Word this morning? All right. Good news, good news. We have a great text this morning. Open up your Bibles and turn with me, please, to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Just a, a wonderful passage from John's 11th chapter. Last week, if you were with us, we covered the, uh, we'll just call it the introduction to the raising of Lazarus 1 through 16. Um, this morning, we'll cover verses 17 through 27, which focuses on Jesus' conversation with Martha. Um, but let's start by reading uh, verses 1 through 4 again for the uh, context, and then we'll just jump right down to verse 17 and read to uh, verse 27 for today. So John chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now let's drop down to our passage this morning, verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now before we actually get to the actual raising of Lazarus, the narrative shifts its focus here in these verses from the death of Lazarus to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in this second scene, I'll call it, John has given us some intimate details which explore the faith of his close friend Martha as she is grieving this very real loss of her brother Lazarus. And there's a very important message for us on how God wants to strengthen our faith through trials. How Jesus wants to build our faith when things don't work out the way we had hoped. Because I think for most of us, this is a very real and relatable story. I mean, we can relate to when things don't work out the way that we had hoped. Or when one of our relationships with family or friends has deteriorated. Or maybe you've experienced loss for some, even the death of a loved one. The Bible tells us that whatever trials we may face, we know that the testing of our faith 
produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And in our verses today, Martha's faith is, is certainly being tested. But I think we'll see through this trial how Jesus is calling on her faith not to only persevere, but also to be strengthened. In other words, he wants her faith to grow. The problem we face, just like Mary and Martha, is we tend to limit God in our trials. Instead of relying on God and depending on him more in trials, our faith sometimes becomes weakened as we scale down or, or we diminish God's incredible promises. And that's what we see here. It's not that Mary and Martha so much distrusted the Lord, but neither did they believe with the full confidence that would allow them to cast their cares and to rest in the good Lord's provision. Far too often, we who are in Christ trouble ourselves with questions of why and the what-ifs and how, and so miss the blessing that could be ours if we would only trust in God more fully. Richard Lenski writes this about the end of verse 26. He says, notice Jesus doesn't ask Martha how she feels, but rather what she believes. We see in verse 26, do you believe this is to believe what Jesus has said of himself and thus to believe in him? It is one thing to hear it or to agree with it, he says. It's quite another thing to believe embrace and trust it to believe is to receive to hold to enjoy the reality and the power of it with all that lies in it of joy comfort peace and hope and quote in our passage this morning jesus challenges martha in the middle of her very real grieving in the middle of her loss, to trust in him in an even deeper way. And if you can identify with Martha this morning, if you are carrying some form of a burden, any sort of anxiety or worry, or maybe you lost someone and you're still carrying that grief, I want to encourage you to take that to the Lord this morning. I want you to, to ask the Lord to increase my faith, Lord, to comfort me like you do with Martha here. So let's walk through the, the passage and we'll see, I think, four different stages of Martha's faith as it starts to grow. I've outlined these in your bulletin. Number one is verses 17 through 20, a faith in the pain. Number two is verses 21 through 22, a faith when we don't fully understand. Number three is verses 23 through 24, a faith that is reassuring. And then number four is verses 25 through 27, where we see a faith that is believing. So let's start there in verse 17. It says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Jesus arrives in Bethany, 
Lazarus has already been dead how many days? Four days. You remember last week in verse 6 it said when Jesus got the news of the sickness, he decided to wait how many days longer? Two days. Two days longer before he was going to go to where Lazarus was. Jesus and his disciples were about 20 miles away from Bethany to where they were ministering the disciples of John the Baptist. That was just beyond the Jordan River. So if it took the messenger about a day to get word to the Lord, and then Jesus waited two days, and it took another day for Jesus and the disciples to go to where uh, Bethany, it's likely Lazarus had died the very day the message had left. So when Jesus arrives then in verse 17, Lazarus has been dead already four days. And we find Mary and Martha grieving the loss of their brother. Family and friends have come from Jerusalem to console them. The verses we read last week make very clear to us this was a family who was very close to Jesus. They were intimately close with the Lord. So when the sisters sent word to him, it simply said, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. They believed Jesus would take care of them. If they could just get word to him, Jesus would then heal their dying brother. So when Jesus arrives, he finds them in a place that, well, they never really expected to be in. Have you ever been in a situation like that? When that whole world that you thought you had under control all suddenly unexpectedly turns upside down. That's where Mary and Martha were. Now before we go on, I, I want to make sure we understand Lazarus' condition. Verse 17 says, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Four days. Now, uh, a tomb in, in New Testament uh, times was a sort of grave-like chamber cut into limestone. And it typically belonged to families who had means, who had some money. It was customary to bury the deceased almost um, immediately upon death. There was, of course, the heat and humidity to deal with, so the Jews didn't uh, practice embalming. Um, the dead were prepared that very day. They would uh, wrap each limb, we're told in Scripture, the head separately with linen cloths, and then make a spread out of aloes and, and strong um, spices um, and cover the cloth with it. They would uh, then lay the the dead body on a stone ledge inside the tomb. And then after a certain amount of time, they would then take the bones that were left once the flesh was gone and, and they moved them to what's called an ossuary. There's a picture of one. It's kind of a, a box-like chest. And then the ossuary would go into its own little spot uh, in the tomb. Um, you filled the tomb with each of the family members, so sort of each generation had their own little slot that you could slide them into, into one single tomb. Now, the fact that John mentions the number of days that Lazarus is dead is, is I think, fairly significant. Uh, first of all, it's important that you know that we serve a God who rules over everything in our lives. Do you know that he's numbered not just the number of hairs on your head, but how long it is that you are going to live? Psalm uh, 139, verse 16 says, 
your eyes, O Lord, saw my unformed body. In other words, I knitted you in your mother's womb before you were born. I already knew you. Psalm is a psalm of David here, and he says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Okay? I mean, we can sometimes forget that God providentially directs all things in our life, including the timing of every circumstance that you run into. He knows exactly what's going to happen before it happens. And I don't know about you, but I take great comfort in that. I believe what he says. He knew me before I was born. And he already knows the days he's ordained for me to live. So in verse 17, John mentions here that Lazarus has been dead four days. Now, why does that matter? Well, there's a couple of reasons we could say. Uh, number one, the Jewish culture believed in a, in a number of superstitions. We've already seen uh, one or two of them through John's gospel. Uh, angels stirring up the water and all that. But um, one of them was that when a loved one had died, the spirit of that loved one who died hovered around the body for up to three days. And it was thought that the spirit of dead would then see all the people mourning and crying and see all of that sorrow happening for this, for this life. So needless to say, this, this incentivized uh, the people. Eh? Jews actually went out and hired people professional mourners, professional criers to weep. If they weeped long enough and loud enough and enough people came, maybe, just maybe, that spirit would, would realize how valuable that life was and return to that body. But after three days, there was no more hope. Three days was the limit. That was reason number one. Reason number two is probably a little more likely, I don't know, by Jesus delaying two days, allowed enough time for the body's decom decomposition to take place. That's why in verse 39 Martha said, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. And the King James, I've had you trained on this for a couple of years, it said, by this time, Lord, he's thinketh. He's been dead four days. He stinketh. <laughs> it reeks. A, a, a horrible smell is coming from by four days. Now, most of us haven't seen what happens to a, a body after it dies. Are any hands here that have hung around a body for more than a couple days? All right, good. If a loved one dies, we usually get it brought to a funeral home. It gets em embalmed. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, the Jews didn't do that. So they just wrapped up the body. They put the mixture of aloe and spices on it to conceal that horrendous odor that comes from a decaying body. John says Lazarus has been dead four days. So you understand the fullness of this miracle. Let me, I did a little bit of quick research. Uh, let me quickly mention some of what happens to the body in those four days. Obviously, immediately at the time of death, the heart, of course, stops beating. First thing to go, the brain. The lungs obviously have stopped breathing. The blood drains from the capillaries and it collects in the lower surfaces. The body then becomes pale as the lower surfaces become dark. Within the first hour or two, the muscles begin to stiffen. Rigor mortis sets in. And that's funny, kind of research a number of places. Rigor mortis lasts anywhere from, from one day up to 36 hours. 
um, interestingly, but eventually, at, at a certain amount of time, the body then becomes soft. And uh, it's been described as soap-like. And since bacteria also remain still in the intestines after death, it begins to attack the rest of the body. All the cells have broken down. Um, everything starts to liquefy. Insects start to lay their eggs. The internal organs begin to bloat. Horrific odors and gases are emitted. You get the picture. That's Lazarus' condition. Four days, dead. He's dead, dead. Stinketh. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, humanly speaking, all hope is gone. <laughs> He's starting to stink in there. And so we see in verse 19 that many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brothers. So Martha and Mary are heartbroken. They're, they're, they're possibly confused with what's going on. Everything seems to be falling apart. This is not what we had planned. This is not what we believed. And so that's where they are right now. But in verse uh, 20, uh, Martha does what we should all do when we're hurting. It says in verse 20, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. What did Martha do? She takes her problem straight to the Lord. Straight to the Lord. Amen? Great, great little reminder tucked in there. What do you do when you, when you got difficulties, when life is not adding up for you, when things are not going the way that, that you had hoped and prayed for and had faith for and thought? What do you do when you're grieving? We take it to the Lord. Psalm 34, 18, a very comforting verse to those who have gone through grief. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And for those of us who have gone through that very real loss of a loved one unexpectedly, the Lord indeed is faithful. So Martha has faith, but she is no doubt emotional. She is hurting. Uh, she is confused. Things didn't work out the way she thought. So let's go over to point number two, and we see a faith when we don't fully understand. This is where Martha is. She, she's got some questions. So let's see what happens with her there in verse 21. It says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Very uh, real, very raw. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't be dead. Um, godly men differ on the interpretation of this verse. Some suggest Martha is rebuking Jesus here. I would strongly disagree with that. You just have to read the rest of the story to know this, that that isn't true. And, and I don't think the Holy Spirit here would have used Lord there. If that was the case, Lord is used very carefully in the Gospels, especially pre-resurrection. So rather, I think these are words of grief. They are very real heartache. She no doubt has some questions in her pain. She believed Jesus had the ability to heal her brother. She was incorrect in her assumption, however, that Jesus needed to be there to heal him. <laughs> We've already seen Jesus does not need to be there to heal. No, I think we see here Martha has faith, but she also has a limited faith. She has a limited faith. Her, her, her faith only goes about that far right now. <laughs> she limits what God can, can do in her head. 
And, and she does it again in verse 39 when Jesus is standing at the tomb and he says to Martha, Martha, take that stone away. She says, but Lord, there's a stench in there. I don't care. Take that stone away. <laughs> well, Jesus didn't have to be physically present to heal Lazarus. And Jesus can rise someone from the dead four days or 400 days after they're dead. It doesn't matter. So when you get down to it, Martha is really questioning, is Jesus, is Jesus in complete control of everything here? Have you ever done that? Is, it, it, question Jesus, are you in total control of what's going on here? Have you ever limited Jesus in your own life in maybe grief? I mean, we all believe in his promises when things are good. But do you believe in his promises when they're not? So verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Notice what she says there, though, in verse 22. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Martha recognizes Jesus has a special relationship with God the Father. She, she, she believes, Martha believes Jesus can ask him, and whatever you ask, God will give to you. But I'm not sure if her eyes are fully open yet, because she doesn't seem to connect the dots that I and my Father are one. <laughs> Jesus is God. One commentator said this, her words outran her actual convictions. I like that. It might be that, that her profession of faith is bolder than her actual faith. That's something for us to consider. Is your profession of faith bolder than your actual faith? And I think we've all been there before, especially in difficult times. I know I can relate to this. I've been humbled more than once. I'm sure I'll be humbled again by this. Um, so we've seen what faith looks like in the pain. Number two of faith when we don't really understand. That's where she's kind of at right now. Let's go to number three and we see a faith that is reassuring. A reassuring faith. Um, Jesus in such a patient and, and gentle way. He is, he is patient. He is kind. He is gentle. He wants to reveal even more of himself to Martha. He, he wants to teach Martha more about who he is to expand her faith to reassure he's got everything under control everything in fact he's ordered everything in a way that she can't even imagine look at these powerful words in verse 23 feel the compassion of our Lord Jesus. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. These words are incredible as I think they also go right over her head. <laughs> but Jesus isn't just consoling her with solace. Death will not have the last word at the end of this day. No, Jesus means like later today, Lazarus be coming out of that tomb. <laughs> Martha, okay? Your brother is going to rise. Your brother is going to rise. My brother that's been dead four days? Yeah, that one. But again, Martha, 
limits the words of our Lord, and, and, and we do the very same thing at times, don't we? We read God's word that are, that are filled with his wonderful promises, but we just don't think that they really apply to us, especially in those difficult times. We question, is God really with me here? Is he for me in this pain, in this hurt, in this situation I'm in? Well, in verse 24, Martha responds. Martha said to Jesus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So, so Martha hears Jesus' words that are meant to strengthen her faith. The Lord has given her wonderful reassurance. Your brother will rise. He gives her a promise. But she only believes he's got power to do it in the future. On the last day. Not right now. Charles Spurgeon has a great take on verse 24. He says, Martha put the promise of Jesus in the remote distance. We've done that as well before, haven't we? Spurgeon goes on to say, this is a common foolishness of all Christians. Telescopes are not meant to bring objects. Telescopes are meant to bring objects near to the eye, but some look through the wrong end. He says, do not refuse the blessing when the Lord delays his coming. I thought those were some rich words. So, so Jesus gives her these words of reassurance, but Martha is still slow to accept them as reality. How about you? How much weight do you place on the promises of God? Do you believe that he will never leave you and never forsake you? Do you believe all that the Father gives to me will come to me? And all that the Father gives to me, I will never cast out? Do you believe his promise or do you still worry about your salvation? I hear people say all the time, man, I just want to be used by God. Well, Jesus said, come and follow me and I will make you fisher of men. He didn't say, follow me, and I'm going to assign you a task I think that you might be good at. No. Christ is promising that if we just follow him, he will do the work in us and through us. He will make you fishers of men and ladies. Do you embrace God's promises or do you leave them up on the shelf? Because I think God is certainly saying today, there's so much more that I can do in you and through you but do you believe this? Do you believe this? In 1 John chapter 5, John writes to this first century church. He's been reminding them uh, of God's promises. Wonderful verses, the victory we have in the Son, Jesus Christ, who has overcome the world. He says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. These are just some of just the many, many promises that our good Lord gives us. The, the question is, do you believe them? Do you believe them? 
Listen to this statement as I read it. Uh, actually, I think I got a copy last night. Yeah. Uh, see if you can claim the statement as your own. This was written almost 100 years ago by a British pastor by the name of Alan uh, Redpath. He writes, there is nothing, no circumstances, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and gone past Christ and through to me. If it has come that far, it has come with a purpose which I may not understand at the moment, but I refuse to become panicky. And as I lift up my eyes to him, and as I accept it as coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing to my heart, no sorrow will ever disturb me, no trial will ever disarm me, no circumstance will ever cause me to fret, for I will rest in the joy of what my Lord is. That is the rest of victory. That's essentially what Jesus is trying to teach Martha here and what he is teaching us today as well. Listen, the, the, the closer we are to Jesus and the more fully we know who he is, the better we will rest in the joy of our Lord and the greater reassurance we'll have in God's promises. So that brings us to our last point today, number four, as, as Jesus continues to stretch Martha's faith in these verses, we see a faith that is now believing, a believing faith as we now look at verse 25. And just, just <laughs> this is near impossible, but just try to imagine being Martha in this moment as she's standing in front of our Lord Jesus Christ as he says one of the most profound statements ever uttered. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Just incredible. Only God could say such a thing. This is, of course, another of the great I am statements, and every one of them has to do with Jesus being the, the life giver. As we talked about last week, this is uh, a life-giving ministry that Jesus is been all about Jesus said in chapter 6 I am the bread of life he said in chapter 8 I am the light of the world he said in chapter 10 I am the door of the sheep and again in chapter 10 he said I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and here in chapter 11 Jesus now says I am the resurrection and the life. This is the fifth of seven great I am statements found in the only in the Gospel of John. Each time Jesus is declaring deity. He is using uh, ego amy I am. Jesus is claiming to be the very same God who in Exodus 3 appeared to Moses in the burning bush. The very same God who says to Moses, say to the people of Israel, I am who I am sent you. Notice the order in verse 25. Jesus first says, I am the resurrection. Now we've already seen Jesus repeatedly mention the resurrection 
mostly focused on the last day. We read through it in John chapter 5, verse 21, uh, John chapter 5, 25 through 29, and again in John chapter 6, 39 through 40, he makes another statement of resurrection. In, in all these th- sayings, Jesus has been in line with mostly mainstream Judaism. Judaism. They believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees um, didn't. Uh, but, but where it differs from Jewish thought is Jesus is also insisting that he alone, under the express sanction of the Father, will raise the dead on the last day. Since the wages of sin is death, Jesus must conquer both before we can have eternal life in him. And since the whole human race is dead in sin and therefore separated from a holy and righteous and just God, Jesus must provide the atoning sacrifice, which is what he did when he went to the cross at Calvary. And it didn't end there, okay? Because Jesus needed to defeat the curse of death itself, and Jesus did that when he arose from the grave. Jesus was the firstborn of the resurrection. Colossians chapter 1, discipleship group, you'll recognize these verses that we've been in them. It does a great job of relying this truth to us. It says in verse 18, and he, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body of the church. Christ is head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or first, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All all of God dwelt in the Lord Jesus Christ. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, And you, that is all of us, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all a creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister of. Powerful, powerful truths. The blood of Christ provides the means of reconciliation to the dead in sin. His resurrection opens the gate, if you will, to eternal life. Notice in Back in verse uh, 25, Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to oversee the resurrection. He, didn't, he doesn't say, I'm going to administer a resurrection and then give eternal life. No, Jesus says, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is a person. It is Jesus Christ. It is not an event. I am the resurrection. And by saying this, Jesus is declaring that if someone has the life, that I have, that I give 
If you are a child of the king, if you are related to God, if you're a child of his, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will have the resurrected life, Jesus says, that I have. I am the resurrection and the life. So here, Martha, we can't forget about her. She might be on the ground by now. I don't know what I've been doing. Jesus is certainly speaking to us today, but first he's speaking to her. She's still grieving over the loss of her brother. And Jesus is teaching her that he alone possesses all authority over the grave and death. And I'll tell you something, if you possess that, you possess everything. <laughs> so what is Jesus giving? Jesus is giving himself. Himself. Can you see that? Jesus is the gift. Jesus is eternal, everlasting life. He has all power over death, and in him is eternal life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Verse 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Wow, amen indeed. Who's Jesus speaking about here? Well, consider the context first. He could very well be speaking about Lazarus, the first part there. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Uh, we know already that Lazarus believed in Jesus Christ. He believed in Jesus. And when we believe in Jesus, he gives us spiritual life. Immediately, life. So you see, even if he dies in the flesh, spiritually, Lazarus lives. He ain't dead. He's alive. But no doubt this is also a spiritual truth for anyone. Anyone, whosoever, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Paul, Paul says something incredible to the church in Corinth. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 8 we are confident i say and willing rather to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord what a promise if you have a loved one who was a disciple of the lord jesus christ they are with jesus right now right now yes our bodies Maybe buried in a casket, and those bodies over time are, are, are breaking down in the ground. But your spiritual self is in the presence of God. And I can guarantee you, they'll never, they'll never be more alive than they are right now. In the presence of the glory of God. And what about those old dead bodies of ours? What happens during the resurrection? The Bible answers these questions in absolute clarity in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. And these were questions of the early church. So Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. They were concerned. What, what happens to them? Have we missed the, the, the resurrection already? Are, are we left behind? What, what about these graves? What, what's going on? I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, 
that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. This is why we have a living hope. There's no need for you to grieve as others do. We've got a hope. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Verse 15, but for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Those who are in the grave said, Lord comes, we will not go up before they do. For the Lord himself, so if you're worried about your, your loved ones, those bodies that were left behind, the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ, they will rise first. So if you're around for this, and you start seeing all those bodies going up, you'll know what's going on. Then, we who are alive, so if the Lord shows up tonight, and we're going through this, we who are alive, when the, when the Lord comes, the dead have already gone up, we who are alive and who are left will be caught up, our podzoed, together with them in the clouds. Hey, see your old Aunt, Aunt uh, Martha. <laughs> see your cousin, that, 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 your husband, your wife, your, your, your child, your loved one. In this raised, glorified body, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Well, well, what about this? What about that? Will we be separated from God? No, we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Be encouraged, church. Maranatha, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Be encouraged. Well, the Lord concludes this conversation with application to Martha and application to us. And he does so by asking the question we must all answer. Look at the end of verse 26. Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe everything I have just told you? Again, Jesus doesn't say, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about it? But, but, but rather, do you believe in me? <laughs> do you believe in me? I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Very straightforward. Do you believe this? Well, this time Martha doesn't hesitate. She answers the question with conviction. She is a faith that is believing. Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe. Now remember, she hasn't seen the raising of Lazarus yet. This is still later. And she says, yes, Lord, in, in emphatic, yes, yes. And she goes on to say, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. She confesses with her heart, with her mouth, that Jesus is Lord. 
That's Jesus' word. You shall be saved. He is the Son of God, co-equal with the Father. She believes that. And you've come from God to do God's work. She believes that. This is essentially where we started in John's gospel. John 1, verse 4, reminded me of it. As John's trying to explain the word that became flesh, that dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Son, full of grace and truth. As, as the Holy Spirit was moving John to write down this amazing first chapter of John that we spent probably two months in, because it's so filled with wonderful truth. It, this morning, as I was kind of putting my last touches on this, John 1, 4 just came to mind because it, it reminds me how it started. It says, in him, in Christ, was life. This is where this whole idea starts in the, in the very first chapter of John. In the Lord Jesus Christ was life. And the life was the light of men. He's talking about himself being the light. John says, yeah, we saw him. We beheld him. He was both life and he was light. Light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. What a victory call of light shining into darkness. The, the, the darkness runs and hides under the rocks when the light of the Lord Jesus Christ walks in. Martha's affirmation of faith stands with other great confessions that we have seen in scripture. Peter, we saw that great declaration at the end of John chapter 6. Nathaniel, you'll remember, all the way back in chapter 1. That was a wonderful confession of the Son of God. The disciples' confession in Matthew chapter 14 out in the Sea of Galilee. Truly, this is the Son of God. That, that's a big one. And then Peter in Matthew 16. And then here we have Martha. You can put Martha's name with those four or five wonderful convictions and declarations of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. We've gone through a half of John and we've been hearing a lot of unbelief. Well, here in the darkness, the light shines through it. Martha rises up and she says, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Christ that he is the Son of God. He is identical in John's purpose for writing this book. I have written these things. I have written these things that so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's the purpose of why he writes this. Martha declares this truth before he does. So is this your confession today? And if it is, do you have a faith that's growing more and more each day? Or has your faith become stagnant over hardships and, and trials and difficulties? We saw today how the Lord stretched Martha's faith when, when we started. Her faith was, was stuck in pain and loss. It didn't look too powerful. Her faith was stagnant because she didn't understand how all this had happened. But then we saw the Lord Jesus pouring into her. He's patient with her and kind he works with Martha's questions. He understands her grief, but he doesn't stop there. He says to her, just give me the faith the size of a mustard seed and nothing will be impossible. It's a reassuring faith as we see her faith then begin to grow as the Lord pours into her, as he teaches her, as he reveals more of who he is to her. And the Lord does this with you and me. 
Every time you spend time alone in the spirit and in his word, he is ministering and teaching to you. Every time that you attend one of those small group Bible studies with other brothers and sisters, he is ministering to you. That iron is sharpening iron like the boys have on the t-shirts. God's word is living. It's active. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the discerner of thoughts and the intent of the hearts. And then finally, we saw where Martha's faith grows into a believing faith as she confessed to Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe. That's the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel and the call of Jesus Christ. Is it, do you believe? Do you believe I am who I said I am and who I've revealed myself to be? Nearly a hundred times this gospel will declare those words. Believe. Believe. You must believe. Whosoever would believe. Well, we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. None is righteous, not even one. We need a Savior. Jesus provided the means. He provided the machines. The uh, cross atoned for our sins. The grave declared he has defeated death. And I'll close with this verse, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, so when the corruptible has put on in the incorruptible, and this mortal has put on immorality, then shall we be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you need the prayers of the church this morning, or if you're struggling in an area of your faith, and you just want to come alongside some brothers and sisters, please come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation this morning. Thank you.